0: You know, I still remember the first time I ever stood up to preach. I was a senior in high school, and my church home in Houston, Second Baptist Church, did a thing called Youth Sunday. And as a senior in high school, I was one of four people that was prepared and taught how to preach for this particular Sunday. And on this particular occasion... Everything went really pretty well. We had rehearsed and prepared so much, but I remember the first time about three years before that that I ever stood up to speak or to teach a word from the Bible that did not go that well. I was in the ninth grade, and I was team teaching with a good friend of mine, David Bowling, who was a couple of years older than me. We were teaching a Sunday school class, and on this particular Sunday, we were assigned a passage of scripture to teach from the life of David, I want to say the the lesson that day came from 2 Samuel or something like that. I don't remember the exact passage of scripture, but I do remember this, that I was to go first and then I was to kind of hand off to David and we had talked about it together, we had gone to the class to learn how to teach together and then we had split up, I took the first part, he was going to do the second part, and when I stood up to do the first part in the opening of this lesson on that Sunday morning, I stood up and I Opened with a word of prayer because I thought that's, you know, it's just kind of what you do. And then I asked everybody to open their Bibles to 2 Samuel, and they opened their Bibles to 2 Samuel. And I said, today we're going to look at the life of David. And I had nothing else. I mean, that was it. My mind went stone blank. I had nothing. And I just started kind of grasping at straws. I had just said the name David, and I I think I threw out something about Goliath and Bethlehem, and Jesus. And then I said, David, your turn. And I went and sat down after about a minute and a half. Can I just tell you that I still remember that feeling of not knowing what to do, but more importantly, I did not have an understanding of why. I was there teaching that lesson that morning, and I still remember that feeling of sitting down knowing, Mac, you just choked in front of these people that have known you your whole life. Somebody is gonna tell your mother before lunch (laughs) what just happened. It, It was just an awful, awful feeling. How many of you have ever had a presentation go bad? If you've ever been in a classroom or maybe a sales meeting or something, I mean, when it goes bad, did you know that most people statistically are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death? People would rather die than do what I'm doing right now. But here's the thing. What I learned on that particular Sunday as a freshman in high school was that knowing what to do matters. Knowing why to do it matters more. Knowing what to do matters, but knowing why to do it matters even more. As you and I approach Easter, the celebration of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, I think it's imperative for us to understand what it means to walk in the wake of the cross. Specifically, to walk this way. As Jesus was... Approaching the cross, we look at the biblical account of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see Jesus's ministry, Jesus's message coming to an incredibly fine point and focus as he knew what he was approaching. He, he knew that his time on earth physically was approaching a conclusion. And he knew what was awaiting him there on that cross outside of Jerusalem. And because he knew that, He began to really focus his message. He began to really focus his disciples on what was the most important thing. And so for us as a church family, over the next few weeks, we are going to look at Jesus' life specifically, four overarching themes that we see throughout his life, but especially in the closing days of his earthly ministry, four themes that we see really and truly brought home. Now, When I say the word theme, some of you kind of get a little wave of nausea and cold sweat because you think back to English class. You know what I'm talking about where where the teacher, how many of y'all remember those tests or papers that you'd have to write where explain the theme of A Tale of Two Cities? Anybody remember that? I do. My mom was an English teacher, so every time I got to those tests, there was a little added pressure for me. But when we talk about a theme from Jesus' life, we're not just talking about an academic pursuit We're not just talking about something to understand intellectually and be able to regurgitate. We're actually talking about an example to follow, a message to mimic, if you will. And to get at this, I want to just go specifically to a moment in time as kind of the foundation for this entire series. It's found in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 10, the Bible says, describes Jesus as he's approaching Jerusalem just before his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. In Mark chapter 10, the Bible says this, talking about Jesus and his disciples. He says, they were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Now, I'm, I'm going to come back to this passage in just a second, but briefly, I think that one verse describes really well what it ought to look like to be a follower of Jesus. What it looks like for anybody who would say, I I am a Christian. I have definitively placed my faith in Christ. I have definitively decided to follow him. That's what a disciple does. We think of a disciple as somebody who kind of, you know, learns and sits in class and takes notes. But in reality, a disciple is one who follows. And you see this right there. Number one, they were on the way up to Jerusalem. First of all, every single one of us is on the way somewhere. Look at your neighbor and tell them with passion and enthusiasm, you're on the way. way. Some of you didn't use the right inflection. I said, "You're you're on the way. Everybody's going somewhere. I'm curious this morning, how many of you are going to work outside the home tomorrow? Let me see a show of hands. Maybe you're going to school tomorrow. You're on the way somewhere. The Christian life is designed to be lived out, to be expressed on the way. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, life with Christ is about following Jesus. You're on the way. But what does the Bible say there? They were on the way up to Jerusalem and Christ was walking ahead of them. See, here's where I get in trouble. See see if this resonates with you at all. I get in trouble because a lot of times I decide what I want to do and then ask God to bless it after that. Does anybody else ever wrestle with that? Can of just see a show of hands? Where I kind of decide, you know what, God, I'm going to do this. And I run down that road and I work and I plan and I scheme and I get going and I worry and I fret and I get stressed out. And then I say, oh, God, if you would please come along and bless what I've just decided. Lord, please do bless my mess. But that's not the picture here in Mark chapter 10. The disciples were following behind Jesus. They were walking where he was already going. Jesus was ahead of them. But then what does it say about the disciples? They were filled with awe. Filled with awe. I think filled with awe is one of the primary reasons Jesus spoke so emphatically about the need for us to have the faith of a child. Because, you know, it's kids who have no problem with awe. Kids are the ones who are like, Oh, man, it's Tuesday. And it's grown-ups who are like, Oh, a baby was born. That's so lovely. But to be filled with awe. I remember when I was a kid, I was about six years old, and we went to visit family in deep south Louisiana, and my Uncle Rex had a farm outside of town. Now, town was Eunice, Louisiana. Has anybody ever heard of Eunice, Louisiana? Both of you get bonus points. It's a small town, but Uncle Rex had a farm outside and he had a few cattle and a few horses. But on this particular Saturday morning when we were there, one of his cows was about to calve and she began to go into labor while we were there. I remember my dad going into the stall and helping to deliver this calf and Six years old, I just sat, just sat there against the, the barn wall and went. <laughs> How many of you have ever seen an animal, like a, like a big animal, born? You know what I'm talking about? You're going to be filled with awe the first time that happens to you. You are never the same. I was, fast forward about 20 years, I remember having the exact same experience when Emily and Joseph were born. There in the delivery room as Julie is Julie's giving birth. I mean, it was just—it's mind-boggling. But to be filled with the awe of God, to, to to take a moment, on a regular basis, maybe daily, and really ponder the goodness of God. What what he's done for you. Who he is, his majesty, his immensity. To just just be blown away by the character and the nature of God Almighty. I want to teach you a word this morning. It is the Hebrew word chesed. And, And it's really kind of fun to have said it. When you say chesed, you get that little phlegm ball in your throat. So I want you to say, kind of work that up a little bit. Don't let it go out, but just kind of work it up a little bit. And on the count of three, we're going to say chesed together. You ready? Everybody kind of... Here we go. One, two, three. Chesed. Very good. Y'all just smoke the 930 crowd. If you see somebody, you need to tell them that. The word chesed in the original Hebrew means God's loving kindness. God's loving kindness. Now... The English equivalent of that Hebrew word doesn't really do it justice because the word chesed has a verb flavor attached to it. It is a pursuing loving kindness. It is God looking for opportunities to express his loving kindness to you. That's who he is. That's what he does. It's kind of like when you're dating You know, before you get married and you retire, your wife-winning jersey, when you were dating your spouse, you you were pursuing him. You were pursuing her. It's a fine line between pursuing and stalking, but we're talking about pursuing. That was funny. You should have laughed at that. (laughs) That pursuing loving kindness is what God does for you. It's what he does for me. God is pursuing you he's pursuing me with his loving kindness when you really stop to consider that for a minute you should be filled with awe, to be blown away that the god of this universe the god who created the oak trees the god who created sweet tea The God who created you loves you and pursues you. He's coming after you with loving kindness. It's amazing. And so we start to understand that particularly as we think about Easter. Particularly as we think about the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus is. As I said, bringing it to a very fine focus. Verse 33, he continues. And the Bible says that Jesus said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And so, Jesus is kind of focusing the disciples here. He says, listen, it's about to get real. Listen, this is what awaits me. It's going to get bad, but it's going to get real good. So, I need your head in the game. I need you to get your head right and understand the weight, understand the significance of of what's going on. And I think for those of us who have said already, I am a Christ follower. I have chosen to respond to God's grace initiative in Jesus. I have stepped into that relationship with Christ personally and definitively. It's incumbent upon us to say, "Okay, what was he all about? What what is it that Jesus Does? What is it that Jesus did? What is it that He wants me to do in order to walk this way? In order to follow Him, what does that look like? And as we pick that up this weekend to begin this series, I can't think of a better teaching moment from the life of Jesus than an exchange He had with a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, some of you may be familiar with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the Bible says, was vertically challenged. He was a short dude. And Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming into his town. This is recorded in Luke chapter 19, just three short chapters before the trial and betrayal of Jesus. But in Luke chapter 19, Jesus puts an incredibly fine point on his reason for existing, for what he was all about. And Uh, We're going to look at this lunch that he had with Zacchaeus in just a minute, but I want to skip to the end of the story because remember, what you do matters, but why you do it matters even more. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 at the conclusion of this lunch with Zacchaeus. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true Son of Abraham. Four, verse 10. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and save those who are lost. That's it. If you ever wonder, what was Jesus' deal? What, what was the point of Jesus' relatively brief life on earth, about 33 years or so? Why did he do that? He just told us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. What Jesus is laying out for us here is what, for the purposes of this conversation, I've just kind of labeled the Zacchaeus Protocol. The Zacchaeus Protocol. Sounds like a good movie title, doesn't it? Now, a protocol is just a prescribed adherence to a list or the way to get something done. There's protocol in diplomatic relationships. There are protocols for medical tests or scientific experiments. But the Zacchaeus protocol is really pretty straightforward, as Jesus' words were. The definition of the Zacchaeus protocol is very simple. It's just this. It is the opportunistic sharing of the gospel. The Zacchaeus Protocol is the opportunistic sharing of the gospel. Now, I say that it's opportunistic because it is that looking for an opportunity, looking for an open door, looking for a conversational window to open up whereby we can then introduce a friend of ours, somebody in our sphere of influence, in our lives, to a relationship with Christ, so where we can introduce somebody who doesn't yet realize how much God loves them to just how much God loves them in and through Jesus Christ. That's the Zacchaeus protocol. It's really pretty simple, but that's not to say that it's easy. As soon as I say the words, sharing the gospel, some of you in this room freaked out. Now, you ran ran calm on the outside. You're like, oh, yes, amen. Preach the word, brother, in season and out, yes. But inside, you wanted to throw up on your shoes. I know it. I know you did, but I want you to know this is the greatest joy you will ever know in life. It is the greatest opportunity that you will ever have to introduce somebody that you know, maybe somebody that you genuinely love and care about, to the greatest love they'll ever know. It it doesn't take a lot of flowery language in King James English It just takes you and me being willing to introduce somebody to Jesus and what he's done for us. It's just being willing to be available, to be used, to be open to what God wants to do in and through us. But the problem is a lot of times we think that this is a task that is reserved for the specialists. This is something that, you know, the preacher does that, man. I don't don't know. You start talking about Jesus, people get a little funky. And to be sure, they do. but they get only as funky as you get in the explanation. If you're not funky, they probably won't be funky either. So tell your neighbor right now, don't be funky. Don't be funky. No, no, no. I, I mean, say it like you mean it. We don't need anybody funky walking out the doors here today, OK? <laughs> tell your neighbor again, don't be funky. Now, Jesus took the opportunity to have this power lunch with Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was the least likely candidate for lunch with God. He was the least likely. He was a tax collector, which meant by definition he was a liar and a cheat and a schemer. He was a bad dude. He was absolutely loaded because he had stolen from other people. There's nothing wrong with being loaded unless you've stolen that, which has made you loaded financially. So Zacchaeus had all of this money, and everybody in town knew the game. Zacchaeus was deputized by the Roman government to collect taxes. He would charge more taxes than were necessary for Rome and keep the difference. Cha-ching Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming down the road. He's coming to town. And remember, he's vertically challenged. He's like spud Webb. I mean, he, he can't do it. So he runs down the road, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree to see the Jesus thing come into town. And look at what happens. This is beautiful. Luke chapter 19. When Jesus came by... He looked up at Zacchaeus, and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. That is a great moment in the history of the world. It's a moment where Jesus looks up at the most unlikely cat in town and says, you and I are going to hang out. Let's, have, let's break bread together. Let's have a meal. And Zacchaeus comes scrambling down the tree. Now, why is that? Remember, the Zacchaeus Protocol... Is the opportunistic sharing of the gospel. Jesus sees this opportunity and says, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your house today. Jesus was not really concerned about lunch. That that was not Jesus' main priority in summoning Zacchaeus out of the tree. Jesus' main priority was the gospel. Remember the son of man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Now, when we say gospel, it's critical that we understand what we're talking about because the gospel is unique. There is nothing like it in the world. And the best clearest way that I know to explain the gospel is John 3:16. John chapter 3 verse 16. Bless you. How many of y'all remember Watching Monday night football, when they would kick a field goal, and there was always a guy between the uprights in an afro rainbow wig with a big poster that said John 3:16. Remember that? How many of y'all do remember? Let me see your hands. Okay, for those of you who don't have your hands up, that means that you are under the age of 45, <laughs> give or take. The rest of us, we, we remember that. Here's the great thing about the gospel: you do not need the rainbow wig. You don't even need the poster. But John 3.16 is fairly important. This is what John 3.16 says. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, these are the words of Jesus. In the Bible, these are the ones in red ink. Jesus says, this is, this is the deal. God loved the world so much. And it's true that God does love the world. He made everything that is in it. But understand that when the Bible says God loved the world, at the head of the list is you. God loves you by name. He loves me by name. He knows exactly who you are because he created you in his name image God loves you I want you to do me a favor real quick turn and face the person sitting next to you just turn and face them and kind of look at each other for just a brief second I won't make you hold this for long because it could get a little awkward but I want you to just look in the eyes of that person real quickly and just tell them God loves you and now tell them this no I mean it Okay, now, that's great. If if you don't know that person, it's kind of awkward. Turn back around and face me. Now turn and look at the person on your other side, who is obviously choice number two. And tell that person, God loves me. Now, that's, you know, some of you maybe just made lunch plans. I don't know, but or at least you have a goal in mind. (laughs) But we can't skate over that. God loves you as is right now, period. You know, whatever mistakes I've made in my life, and there have been a lot of them, at least one thing I know that I did well. I married way up. I married a woman who loves the Lord more than she loves me or anything else. I married the most amazing mother that I didn't even know to ask for when I was asking for a bride. I married somebody who kisses like I can't even describe to you in church. I married well, I'm married great, actually. I mean, like stupid great. How many of you ever wrestle? I do. My hand's up already. How many of you ever wrestle with self-doubt? Let me see a show of hands. If you ever kind of want to, I don't know if, I've, if I can really cut it. I do. Mostly Saturday night's about 945. But I always come back to this. Julie loves me. Julie chose me. <laughs> <laughs> and as great as that is, it pales in comparison to the fact that God loves me. God loves you. For God so loved the world. How much? God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus. When the Bible says he gave his son, it's referring to Easter. He gave Jesus to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus is that opportunistic, loving kindness coming after us. But he's also the one who provides the forgiveness of our sins necessary to be restored into a relationship with God we were created for in the first place. See, my sin, your sin, messes that whole thing up. God's perfect, we're not. And so that disconnect is something we can't fix on our own. I, I can't earn God's favor. I can't do enough good things to make him forget the bad things. He's still God. He is still morally Pure and flawless. And so in that context, in that reality, something's got to give. Or in this case, someone had to give. God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would never die but have eternal life starting right here and right now. Whoever would trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, whoever would accept and appropriate what he did for them on the cross and in the resurrection would be forgiven of everything and restored back into a right relationship with God. Experiencing eternal life starting right now. That's why Jesus wanted to go to lunch with Zacchaeus. And that urgency, that urgency is what is going on. The why generates that urgency. When we understand what God has done for us, we start to understand, man, we've got a limited amount of time. we've, We've got to do something about this. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, today, let's go eat. Zacchaeus Climbed down immediately and took Jesus home with joy and gladness. Both parties had a sense of urgency. Who are you urgent about? Who do you know that you know doesn't know how much God loves them? That's where your urgency needs to reside. Your prayers Your thoughts, your conversations, your meals, your work. The why behind everything that we do creates this sense of urgency. But, say but. But. This is a big but. But, you got to know something. It's not going to be easy or well-received tell your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm buckle up buckle up, buckle up. because look at ex- look at what happens as soon as the invitation was extended and received Luke chapter 19 verse 7 check this out but the people were displeased he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner they grumbled. Is that pitiful? The religious folks started to freak out that Jesus was going to eat with Zacchaeus. Here's what you got to understand. Yes, why generates urgency, but why our motivation also will create critics. Why? will create critics. When you get deliberate, when you get serious and start having fun, introducing people to the greatest love in the world, you will face criticism. There will be people who say, I cannot it that thou didst dine with a notorious sinner. The only problem is they're probably not going to say it to your face. But it will happen. Most Christ followers would never... Oh, that's not me. Listen, people want to reach people until you start reaching people. You know, I'm going to say that again because that will tweet and preach. People want to reach people until you start reaching people. There would be people who would come into our service and they're not going to be down with it. That's fine. That's okay. There are some great churches around that would never dream of baptizing Aerosmith. Their loss. That's a great lick. I love that. But anyway, why do that? To communicate with people where they are so that they don't get left where they are. And when you do that, you're gonna create critics. It's going to happen. People will grumble. I don't know if you should go there. I don't know if you should hang out with her. I don't know. Now, let me say this too. We're not talking about dating. Dating is not supposed to be a mission field. Pastor, that girl over there clearly doesn't know the Lord. I'm going to share. You ain't interested in the gospel, cuz. But just know, when you start sharing Christ, you will receive criticism. That's going to happen. Only if you're doing it right. <laughs> the people started, can't believe you'd go sit down with the sinner. But look at what happens when the Bible continues the story. Verse 8. Meanwhile, say meanwhile. Meanwhile, meanwhile Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said... I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. That meanwhile is so important. You see, standing over here, the religious critics were grumbling and mumbling, can't believe he's eating over there, can't believe he's eating over there. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus and Jesus were doing life change. Zacchaeus and Jesus were getting after it. Zacchaeus had come to know Christ personally and it made a difference. The why sustains change. When you understand what's really going on and what Christ did for you on the cross and the resurrection, things change. There is a before and there is an after. Last night I couldn't sleep. I was a little fired up about getting into this series and I woke up at 3.30 in the morning and I crept out of the bedroom. Julie remained asleep, so all was right with the world. And I went into the living room, and I turned on the TV, and you know, of course, who I saw. Doesn't matter what channel. Tony Horton, P90X. <laughs> Flip that channel? Insanity. And throughout this infomercial, they keep showing the before and the after. And I love the before and the after pictures. Forget what happens physically transformational. The pictures are taken, usually the before picture is kind of in low light. (laughs) Then the after picture is bright light. And they're just ripped. Before and after. When somebody comes to know Christ... Their after picture looks different than their before picture. Jesus transforms things, changes things. Jesus is not into self-help and to give you a good life. Jesus wants to radically alter the trajectory of your life and draw you closer to him, draw me closer to him, to walk his way and to share that with as many people as we possibly can. And the why behind the Zacchaeus protocol sustains that change. You know, social scientists have discovered that a negative motivation will cause you to make a change. But the only thing that will sustain a change is a positive motivation. You'll you'll make the change to start exercising again, eat right because you're tired of being fat. You don't want to be fat. But in order to sustain that over the long haul, you need a reason to do it, not a reason to not do the other. And the gospel is that motivation. You start to realize what Jesus did for you. I start to understand the extravagant price that was paid for me And I can't keep that to myself. I I can't just kind of sit on that and go, this is awesome. Shh, sorry. It's so cool. Oh, it's mine. It's mine. It's private. It's so cool. It's beautiful. Shh. Are you kidding me? And I want to let as many people know as possible, I didn't deserve this. I don't deserve it. Look at what God did for me. There's that urgency. There's that empowerment to withstand criticism. And there is an electricity to sustain that change and to keep it going. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I wanna ask everyone to just remain where you are. Nobody moving around or stirring for any reason, because this is holy ground, folks. If you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ, and as a church, we want to give you that opportunity to respond to that grace initiative that Jesus took on the cross because God so loved you. To just pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of faith and a prayer of beginning. Just silently talking to God, In your own words, just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again from the dead for me. And so I give you my life. From this moment forward, to walk this way with you, to follow you, filled with awe. I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. With every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment more, If that was your prayer, and you meant it for the first time, then that's the most important moment in your life. It's the moment for which you were created. It's the moment from which God will build every other moment going forward. And so it matters, it matters a lot, it matters eternally. so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if that was your prayer, I wanna ask you if you would just raise your hand. And as you hold your hand up high, I want you to hold that hand up high for a moment because you need to make sure that this moment gets marked in your life. To know that you know that you know that this is real. That God's done this for real once and for all. For us as a church, there's nothing more important than that moment in your life. Nothing. And so for us, we wanna be that family of faith for you. As you take the first steps in this new relationship, we wanna help, we wanna learn from you. And so our family tradition is to celebrate you, to celebrate God and what he's done in your life. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together and tell you welcome home.